Today's scripture is from Exodus 1, 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. As we get started, let me pray for us. Faithful God, would you be with us, and would you be with the kids downstairs, that we may get wondrous things from your living word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the team here. It's my joy to open up God's Word with you as we begin our new sermon series in the book of Exodus. Just one thing to note before we jump in. We have scripture journals for all of you to take notes in. It's a book with the text of Exodus and, 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 and margins for you to take notes. If you haven't already gotten one, but you'd like to have one, um, just raise your hand and the ushers, one of our ushers, will get one to you or you can get one on the way out. So let's get into it. The book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the account of how God saved a people from slavery to be set apart as his people so that he might dwell among them and lead them to the promised land. Let me say that again. The book of Exodus is the account of how God saved a people from slavery to be set apart as his people so that he might dwell among them and lead them to the promised land. Land. And even, even as I explain this, we can see why the book of Exodus was so significant, can't we? The same way that Christians today look back on the story of Christmas and, and Good Friday and Easter and other significant historical events that have formed us as a people, God's people back then looked back on this book and events of the Exodus and it was one of the significant historical events that shaped and formed them as a people of God teaching them how and why God had saved them to be His people. But, but the book of Exodus wasn't just significant to God's people back then. Let's be clear, it's significant to us today. Our story, the, our story as God's people today has much in parallel with the story of the people in Exodus. God has saved us from slavery, hasn't He? He has saved us from slavery to be set apart as His people so that He might dwell among us and may lead us to the promised land. And so we see that the book of Exodus has as much to teach us today as it did the people back then. How and why God has saved us to be His people. Today, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Exodus. The first seven verses, and the first thing we need to know, even before we get into it, is that we're dropping into the middle of a story. Exodus is not the beginning of a story, it's the continuation of a story. A story that began all the way back in Genesis, the, the first book of the Bible. And we know that Exodus is meant to continue from the story of Genesis because in the opening seven verses of Exodus, the author is pointing us back over and over again to key themes in Genesis. Key themes that we need to know to fully make sense what's going to be happening in Exodus. It's sort of like those TV shows that begin with a recap of what's just gone on before. 
You know, it starts off, it's, it's, to probably make sense of what's going to be happening in the episode you're about to watch, it gives a recap so that you can, so that you have the full details of what's happened before. You understand the bigger story that this episode is a part of so you can make sense of the significance of what's going to be happening. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Today, we're going to be looking at the three, at three themes from Genesis the Exodus 1, 1 to 7 points us back to, we're going to be looking at God's purposes, God's promises, and God's faithfulness. God's purposes, God's promises, and God's faithfulness. So to our first point, God's purposes. Look at 1 verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I've highlighted three words and, we, and I want us to hold on to these three words because these three words in particular are meant to point us to God's purpose for humanity that He set out right at the very beginning. In the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve in His image and gave Adam and Eve the purpose that they would govern and develop the earth on His behalf. Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over this fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Same three words, fruitful, multiply, fill. We see here that God created humanity for a purpose. But we, we see, what we read uh, as, as Genesis goes on, we see that humanity sinned, meaning humanity failed to live up to God's good purposes and standards. God, uh, sin enters the story, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and humanity enters a downward spiral of sin and destruction. One of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, kills his brother. And then one of Cain's descendants, his great-great-great-grandson, is so evil, he writes a song boasting about the fact that he kills 10 times more people than Cain. Things get so bad that this is how it's described in, in Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things have spiraled to a place where they're so bad that God sends a flood to erase everything and have a new beginning. And we knew that it's meant to be a new beginning because gives, God gives a guy named Noah the same purpose that he gave Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 9 verse 1. This is after the flood. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same words, because it's the same purpose as the one that God gave Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same purpose to govern and develop God's creation on God's behalf. Living out God's purpose, God's way. A new beginning with the same purpose. But as you read on, we find out it's the same sad outcome because it's the same problem. The problem of sin. Even after the flood, the problem of sin remains. People continue to sin, failing to live out God's purposes and leaving behind a trail of destruction and brokenness. Sin is still the problem and we need to be aware of this because the problem of sin is an important lens for us to make sense of all that's about to happen in the book of Exodus. 
In the coming weeks, we're going to be learning about xenophobia and racism and oppression and slavery and murder of newborn babies and more murder and, and fleeing consequences and impatience and grumbling and ingratitude and idol worship. There's so much that's going to happen and sort through, but for us to fully make sense of what's about to happen, we need to see that all the problems in Exodus need to be traced back to Genesis and the problem of sin. Because it's not just xenophobia and racism, it's sin. It's not just oppression, it's sin. It's not just Pharaoh opposing God, it's sin. It's not just slavery and murder and grumbling and ingratitude, it's sin. Genesis gives us the lens to, to understand and make sense of all the problems we see in, in Exodus. And in the same way, Genesis gives us the lens to understand and make sense of all the problems we see in the world around us today. Because it's not just xenophobia and racism, it's sin. It's not just oppression and injustice, it's sin. It's not just slavery and murder and grumbling and ingratitude, it's sin. We need to see that a problem is sin. And when we see that a problem is sin, we stop being surprised. We stop being shocked at the sin we see in others and the sin we see in ourselves. We learn to be aware of sin. We learn not to underestimate the power of sin. And we learn, importantly, to take ownership for our own sin. I didn't just have a bad day. That isn't just how I am. It wasn't just because you said something what I did was sinful. I sinned against you, and I sinned against, sinned against God, and I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? When Jess and I were moving house, one of the things we had to do was to pull out the stove to clean behind the stove. And I, I don't know... Um, for those of you who have ever had to do that before, pull out a stove which has not been pulled out for many, many years and has to clean under and behind the stove, uh, you know what I'm going to say, right? It was disgusting. Absolutely horrifying. You pull it out and, and you just see this whole mess of food and probably what used to be food and, and sauces that have just spilt and, and, and fallen through all the cracks and are now just discolored and decomposing everywhere. And you pull it out and you go, this is gross. How am I going to get rid of it? And, and in sort of the same way, that's how it's like when we see our sin for the first time, isn't it? The first time we pull out the stove and we're confronted with the horror and the disgust of sin and we think, how am I ever going to clean it up? Christ City, it's in the midst of the horror and disgust of our sin, that God enters the picture. When, when we see our sin laid out and we don't know what we're going to do, that's when God enters and He rolls up and he, His sleeves and speaks to us. Which brings us to our second theme, God's promises. Genesis 1-11 to describes a world that is spiraling deeper and deeper into sin and darkness and further and further away from God's good promises. But then chapter 12 happens. In the midst of the horror and disgust of sin and darkness, something remarkable happens. God reveals himself 
and speaks to a guy named Abram. We're not told why, other than the fact that God does. God reveals himself, and he speaks, and he doesn't just speak. He makes an extravagant promise to Abram, an extravagant promise that, he, that we see he have details of in, tw- in chapters 12, 15, and then chapter 17. So look at Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant. Covenant means solemn promise. It means much more than that, but just understand it as a solemn promise. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly, note this, fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. Sojournings means wanderings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Notice here, God uses the same language of being fruitful and multiplying that he did with Adam and Eve and Noah. But there are two key differences. Two key differences between what God said to Adam and Eve and Noah and what God said to Abraham. And maybe some of you picked up on it already. The first difference is this. God adds the subject of land, and we're going to go into that later on because that's important. But for now, what I want us to look at is the second difference. The second difference is this. With Adam and Eve and Noah, God instructs them to be fruitful and multiply. But with Abraham, it's not an instruction. It's a promise. With Adam and Eve and Noah, God instructs them, be fruitful and multiply. But with Abraham, he promises, I will make you multiply. I will make you fruitful. I will make you into nations. The point is this, God has a very specific, glorious purpose for humanity to be fruitful and multiply and to govern and develop the earth on his behalf. But as we see, because of the problem of sin, Adam and Eve couldn't do it. And Noah couldn't do it. And so with Abraham and his descendants, God promises to do through them and for them what they were unable to do on their own. What humans are unable to do because of the problem of sin, God steps in and promises to fulfill on our behalf so that we might live into the glorious purpose He has created us for, so that we might have the fullness of joy that comes with living into the purpose God has created us for. Christ City, God in His grace and kindness promises to do for us and through us what we are unable to do on our own. He did this by sending His Son to live the perfect life on our behalf, and He does this by sending us His Spirit to empower us to live the way He created us to. Last week, John put up a slide of all the things as a follower of Jesus we are to be set apart from and set apart for, and I've got it up there. It's a long list, and I don't want to get into details, but here's my point, okay? Maybe we can take the slide away. People are not focusing. (laughs) 
Here's the point. John said it last week, and we see it again this week. This is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of promises. This is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of promises, promises of the life that Jesus lived on our behalf and now sends His Spirit to enable us to live on His behalf. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of promises. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? When we see a list of do's and don'ts, it's so easy to be daunted and discouraged. Discouraged by all the times we don't live up to the list. All the times we are not patient. We are not self-controlled. All the times we are envious and resentful. But when we see the list as a list of promises, discouragement turns to hope and even anticipation. Because in Christ and by His Spirit, we have been patient, we are patient, we can be patient, and in fact, we will be patient. In Christ and by His Spirit, we have been self-controlled, we are self-controlled, we can be self-controlled, and you know what? We will be self-controlled. We are no longer envious and resentful. We can no longer be envious and resentful. And guess what? One day, we will no longer be envious and resentful. Christ City, all that God calls us to do, Christ has already done for us. All that God calls us to do, He empowers us to do by His Spirit. God never calls us to do anything that He does not empower us to do. God promises to carry out His purposes even when we are unable to do it. But that's not all. He promises to carry out His purposes even when we don't deserve it. I said it just now, I'm going to say it again. We are not given the reason that God makes a promise to Abraham. It's out of nowhere. And in fact, to, to underscore the point, the story of Genesis underscores later on just how undeserving Abraham is of any of God's promises. Abraham kicks out his child and the mother of his child out of his house to fend for themselves in the wilderness with nothing more than a bit of bread and a bottle of water. He gives, up his, he gives up his wife to be violated by other men. Twice. We don't just see this with Abraham. God, God's tendency, God's pattern of making promises to undeserving is something we see throughout Scripture. Look at Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and we know that Jacob was a chronic liar who tricked and cheated his brother out of his inheritance. And Jacob's children... Jacob's children sold their own brother into slavery. None of them are deserving. Their sin is shocking. It's horrifying. And yet, as he did with Abraham, God makes, God repeats his, to Jacob and to Jacob's children and his children's children the same promise they made to Abraham. The same promise that none of them deserve. Look at 35 verse 11. And God said to him, him being Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Same words, 
Because it's the same promise. The, the extravagant promise, the same extravagant promise that God made to Abraham, he now repeats to Jacob, his grandson, that he will be fruitful and multiply, that a nation and a company of nations shall come through him and land will be given to his descendants. It was as, it, what, how it was back then, it is exactly the same now. Christ City, behold God's grace. Behold God's grace that He will make promises, not just promises, extravagant promises to those who don't deserve it, to those who could never deserve it. As we study the book of Exodus, we need to remember the problem of sin, but we also need to remember God's grace as He makes promises to people who don't deserve His promises, who time after time are ungrateful and complain and continue to sin and rebel against Him. And Christ City praise God for that because just as it was with the Israelites, so it is with us now, isn't it? So often I'm confronted by the reality of my sin and the reality that I could never deserve any of God's extravagant promises that He has made to me and yet He has given them to me. Just as God made extravagant promises to Abraham and his descendants, He has made promises to you and to me. Promises through His Son that we could never deserve. Promises of eternal rest, eternal life, eternal joy, that everything will work out for our good, even our own sin and mistakes. Promises that He will always be with us. Promises of His Spirit as a guarantee of all that is to come and to empower us to live into all that we are called to live right now. And Christ City, God isn't like some salesman who makes these wild promises he has no intention of keeping. No, God doesn't just make promises to those who don't deserve it. He keeps his promises, even though we don't deserve it, because him keeping his promises has got nothing to do with us and has everything to do with him. In Christ's city, our God is faithful, which is our third theme for today, God's faithfulness. Look at Exodus 1 verse 7 again. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And before we go on, I just want to clarify for us if we are getting a bit lost. When, when the verse talks about the people of Israel, it's talking about the descendants of Jacob. When God blessed Jacob, he gave Jacob another name, Israel. Jacob and Israel, same person. Before Israel was a people, they, it was a person, the person of Israel. The people of Israel are the descendants of Jacob. And the point is this. In Exodus 1 verse 7, the author uses the language of being fruitful and multiplying. The exact same language from God's promise to Abraham and Jacob. And why is the author doing this? The author is doing this to show us because it's, there is the same promise and that God has been faithful to his promises. That's the main point of the opening of Exodus. What God has promised, he has been faithful to. And the offspring of Abraham and Jacob have been fruitful and multiplied and filled the land just as God promised. Exactly as God has promised. But that's not all. The author doesn't just remind us that God has been faithful. As we 
open the book of Exodus, he reassures us that God will continue to be faithful to his promises. Look at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1 again. These are the names of the sons of Israel, also known as Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 77 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. What we need to see here is that the author isn't just giving us a list of names. He's written these verses in such a way that they are meant to echo Genesis 46. It's sort of like a hyperlink. Those who, the people, the original readers would have been so familiar with the book of Genesis that when they read these first few verses of Exodus, they go, hey, he's talking about Genesis 46. He's pointing us back to the story of Joseph. Look at Genesis 46 verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And then skip down to verse 27, the second half of verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. The author of Exodus is pointing us back to the story of Joseph to remind us of God's faithfulness in the story of Joseph. Let me give a quick recap. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons and he had been sold into slavery by his brothers, which was just evil and unjust. But God, in his infinite wisdom, remains faithful to his promises by using that evil and injustice to save Jacob's entire family. Through a series of events, Joseph went from slave to prisoner to prime minister of Egypt. And so when the entire region was going through a seven-year-long famine, so much so that everyone had run out of food, guess what happened? God used Joseph to save his family by inviting them to live with him in Egypt. The author of Exodus is not just explaining to us how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. They're telling us, he's telling us why that it's a continuation of God's faithfulness to his promises. But here's the thing, there are two parts of the promise, right? Fruitful and multiply, but also land. God not only keeps his promise to protect the line of Abraham and Jacob, but as they set forth for Egypt, God reassures them that he hasn't forgotten about the second half of his promise. He reassures them that he will continue to be faithful to his promise to give them a land of their own. Look at 46, Genesis 46, verse 2. Just before they set off for Egypt, God speaks to Jacob, also known as Israel. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here am I. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God's reassurance here is really important. Because on one hand, going into Egypt makes complete sense. It's a gift from God to protect them from the famine. But on the other hand, God has also promised them the land of Canaan as a land of their own. And, and, and so, Going into Egypt seems like a detour away from God's promise. 
doesn't it? It's, it's like if God has promised you a house of your own in Vancouver, and the next thing you know, He tells you to pack up your bags and go and live with your parents in Calgary. Going into Egypt feels like a detour away from God's promises. Which is why God reassures Jacob that it's all part of the plan. Not just any plan, it's part of God's plan. God promises to go down with them to Egypt and to bring them up again from Egypt. And that brings us to where we are in our story of Exodus. That's where the story of Exodus begins. Jacob and his sons have all passed on. Their descendants have been in Egypt for at least a couple of hundred years. They have been fruitful and they have multiplied, but there's a question that still remains lurking at the back, in the background. When will God bring them up again from Egypt? When will God give them a land of their own? Is God faithful to His promises? And I wonder how many of us may have the same questions as the Israelites did back then. Perhaps it feels like God is leading us in a direction that feels like a detour away from what we know He has promised. Christ City, God is faithful. God will keep every single promise He has made so we can trust Him. In fact, we can trust Him more than we trust ourselves. And that's where the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? Because trust isn't really trust if I need to be the one who stays in control. Trust isn't really trust if I need to have the final say, if I only go where God is leading me as long as I agree with where He's leading me. In Christ City, we can follow where God is leading us, wherever God is leading us, because He is faithful to His promises. Perhaps for, for some of us, instead of it being God leading us in a direction that seems like a detour, we may be in a situation where we can't, seem, where we can't see God at all. Where we might feel directionless. Like we are lost and, and drifting, not knowing where to go and where God is. Perhaps it's due to something we've done or something that someone else has done. Near the end of the story of Joseph, we are told of how his brothers tried to use lies and deceit to manipulate him into forgiving them. And this is what Joseph says. In response to their manipulation, after all the evil that his brothers have done against him, after all the suffering and anguish that Joseph has suffered at the hands of so many, Joseph has eyes only for God and God's faithfulness. Genesis 50 verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then after this, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph stating his complete confidence that God will keep his promise to bring Israel out of Egypt. And then the story ends. Episode 1 ends. And Exodus begins. And the author of Exodus points us back to all that has gone on because he wants us to have a lens to understand what's all, all that's going to happen. Christ City, God is faithful to his promises 
and He will make something good out of all the sin and evil in the world. And you know why we can say that? Because He already has. And He promises that He will. Fast forward thousands of years after Joseph and we have the story of a greater Joseph, the story of Jesus Christ. The only way God could be faithful to his promises was to get rid of the, the problem, the problem of sin once and for all. And Christ said, that's just what he did. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, destroying the power of sin so that we might have eternal life. From the greatest evil that ever happened on the earth, the death of God's own son came the greatest good that could ever happen. And so we know, Christ City, there is no detour too far. There is no sin too deep that God cannot redeem it for our good and His glory. For all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we have been saved from slavery to sin. God dwells among us and we look forward to the day we will be with Him in the eternal promised land. Let's stand as we respond to God's word together.